good morning to you. If you've got your Bible with you, be opening up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, that's where we're going to find a beginning place for our studies, where we're going to spend a good deal of our time there in 2 Timothy. So if you've got your Bibles with you, open up there to 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we'll get started. Our study this morning, our study this afternoon are both going to be about how we can be better servants. And we're going to look at two different individuals in the New Testament who there's not a lot written about them. But what is written about them is very encouraging. They are two individuals noted for their servanthood. And there are some very practical aspects of their lives that we can take and put into practice in our lives so that we can be better servants, be more like Jesus, so that we can help each other. We want to talk this morning about a man by the name of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus, East Texas, one Sephorus, I suppose is a... Onesiphorus, or Onesiphorus, that's what I'll go with this morning. We only read about him in two places in the New Testament. They're both here in 2 Timothy. Start with me here in chapter 1 and verse 15. You are aware, Paul says to Timothy, of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. But the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and he found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. There's a lot in those few verses. There's a lot we don't know in those few verses. But suffice it to say, Onesiphorus and his household were very, very important to Paul and to his work of ministry. We'll read about Onesiphorus one last time in our New Testament. It's in the same book, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in verse 19, where this time it's not Onesiphorus himself who is being greeted here at the salutation portion of Paul's epistle, but he says simply, greet Priscilla and Aquila, that seems to be Aquila and Priscilla, and then he says, greet the household of Onesiphorus. That's phrased interestingly. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a few moments. But in order to better understand what we've got going on here, let's talk some about the background of 2 Timothy. Paul's second epistle to Timothy seems to be in the midst of his second Roman imprisonment. Paul's going to talk over and over again here in 2 Timothy, making reference to his present sufferings and to his present chains and to his imprisonment. Uh, Paul has a first Roman imprisonment. That seems to be going on at the end of the book of Acts. It seems to be more of a house arrest situation than actually being in a prison. Uh, perhaps it is that we have some of what we call the prison epistles written at that time, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. He's going to be released from prison for a while, but then he's going to be arrested again. He's going to be brought into custody again. He's going to be imprisoned this time it seems to be more along the lines of what you and I would think when we hear imprisonment. And as we go through the rest of 2 Timothy, it's going to become pretty apparent that 
Paul is convinced he's not going to make it out of this imprisonment. This is going to be the end of his mortal walk. His life is the end. You're there in chapter 4, perhaps already. You look at verse 6. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Right, if we know any passages from 2 Timothy, it's probably this. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul writes this. We we read this at funerals, don't we? We read this with our loved ones as they're about to pass. It seems solid to reason. Paul's in that same kind of circumstance. He is being poured out as a drink offering. The time of his departure is at hand. And so with Paul being in prison, with his death quickly approaching, he's writing to Timothy and he's trying to encourage Timothy. That's one of the big themes here in 2 Timothy. He wants Timothy, his spiritual successor as it were, to continue on in his stead, to fight the good fight, to preach the gospel, to not be ashamed, but to have courage and to go out and to share that message, especially because there are some dark days coming, Paul says to Timothy. You look there at chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1, realize this, that in the last days, the difficult days are going to come, and he spells out in the subsequent verses what some of those difficulties would be. And he reminds Timothy that all of this will come with, with a form of godliness, but they deny its power, and from such men as these, Paul says, turn away or avoid. And then Paul returns to the theme, especially in chapter 4, of of his present situation. 2 Timothy is one of those books in the New Testament that we really struggle, I think, to divide and parcel up. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Romans, they all follow a pretty easy track where Paul's going to half the time be talking about doctrinal stuff, and in the latter half of the book he's going to make some practical applications for us. 2 Timothy kind of bucks that trend. It's so very personal. And it's written from a a unique perspective in Paul's life. He's about to die. Well, nobody wants to die alone, do they? That's one of the things we mourned about COVID and everything that, that brought along with it, right? Folks who were having to suffer and die alone in the hospitals without family members there. Paul's no different. Paul didn't want to die alone. What's he do here in chapter 4? Calls for his friends. Chapter 4, verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. Because Demas has forsaken me, having loved the present world. Gone to Thessalonica, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. That's interesting because one of the last times we read about Paul and Mark, they're having a fuss. And you have a division of company there because Paul does not want to bring Mark along with him back in the book of Acts. Verse 12, but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, I want you to make a mental note of this right here. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas, with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deed. 
Make every effort to come to me soon, he says. That's kind of our background to 2 Timothy. You remember we, we made that point there in chapter 4, verse 19. Paul is sending his salutations and he says to Aquila, to Priscilla, and then he says to the household of Onesiphorus. But we've got multiple references to the household of Onesiphorus. That's what we read back in chapter 1 and verse 16. You see it again in chapter 4 and verse 19. But that leads us to, to the question, why just think his household? Why not think him? You do have a couple of references specifically to Onesiphorus. Back in Rome, he refreshed Paul in prison. Uh, he searched diligently for Paul and he found him. And he served commendably at Ephesus. But then we have Paul giving thanks for the household. Why not say thanks to Onesiphorus himself? Because the picture that we get here is Onesiphorus seems to be separated from his family. I don't think Onesiphorus is dead at this point. Chapter 1 and verse 18 seems to indicate that he is still alive when the when Paul begs that the Lord grant mercy to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. I wonder if Onesiphorus isn't imprisoned as well. I wonder if he's not imprisoned as well. He was the one who went and checked on Paul in prison. One of the only ones that went and checked on Paul in prison. Do you think maybe he brought some of that ire down upon himself for his bravery? for his dedication to the Lord and his dedication to his brother. For whatever the reason, Onesiphorus doesn't seem to be present with his family. He seems to be separated from his family, and yet Paul had good things to say about him, about this great servant that we know precious little about. But servanthood doesn't always have to be big things. It doesn't always have to be these grand acts. doesn't have to be something that everybody sees, that everybody knows about, that everybody's going to remember. In fact, much of the service that we see scattered throughout the New Testament is of a very subtle variety and of a very private variety. Things that are done in the background, things that are done when no one is around, things that are done that no one else knows about. These are often the acts of service that we see throughout the New Testament and the acts of service that are commended to us as worthy of replication in our own lives. I want you to think about some of this service that Onesiphorus rendered. Chapter 1 and verse 16, start with me here. Number 1, it said that he refreshed Paul. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. I was not expecting that. Here we go. Were you expecting that? You, you guys have heard that before, haven't you? I, I didn't know what was about to happen right there. If the folks on the live stream didn't hear, they're like, what are you talking about? I just heard sirens over there. Sounded like they're about to come through the door. <laughs> All right, I can recover. Here we go. Onesiphorus, he refreshed Paul. He refreshed Paul. That phrase there in the Greek literally means to recreate by fresh air or to cool down. Oh, okay. Let me give you a little bit of background, though. 
we talked about books that are on your Amazon list, maybe on your Kindle, maybe that you often check out from the library and read. Here's one I'm sure that's at the top of your bookshelf because you read it often. Uh, the Penal Practice and Penal Policy in Ancient Rome, right? That's just spellbinding. But on page 133 of this book, there's a description given of what prison was like here in the first century in Rome. And I think it's very appropriate for us to read some of it this morning. Prisons in the ancient world seem to have been dark places of stifling heat and thirst and hunger. We hear little about them in the sources except for the martyrdoms where the view is from below. Normally, prisoners' very condition made them invisible people. Prison was deliberately a place of terror designed to strip the prisoner of all dignity and to induce confessions by both physical and psychological means. There were rations, but they were minimal, for friends and family were expected to supply the prisoner's wants. There seemed to have been few visiting restrictions. Such visits, of course, offered prison guards an opportunity to demand bribes. And it is clear that this practice was widely accepted. For what it's worth, secular history will tell us that Paul's second imprisonment happens there in Rome in what is called the Mamertine Prison. Uh, you can, if you travel over to Italy to this day, you can still visit this site and, and see some of the um, uh, some of the structures still there. Dark places of stifling heat, places of thirst, places of hunger, invisible people, places of terror. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You may get rations. You may get a meal but it's certainly not filling. It's certainly not what you need to prolong your survival, and so you're depending upon friends and family to take care of you. If you've read the rest of 2 Timothy, you know that Paul wants his companions to come to him before when. Do you remember? Come to me before winter. You remember I told you to put a peg back there in chapter 4? What was one of the things that Paul asked his buddies to bring to him? A cloak. Why do you think Paul needs a cloak? Well, these prisons would be dark places of stifling heat in the summer. What do you think they were like in the winter? Rome does get snow. It gets cold. You think they were giving the prisoners blankets and coats and jackets and everything they needed to make sure that they survived? Absolutely not. Which makes then the service that Onesiphorus rendered all the more significant and important. He refreshed Paul to cool down, to recreate by fresh air. That's exactly what Onesiphorus did. There is a there is a figurative way that this is used uh, in First Corinthians chapter sixteen and verse eighteen, and Philemon uh, verse not chapter twenty, verse twenty. Uh, in in both of these passages, you have this same word used. And it's used in a spiritual sense. That folks' hearts were uplifted by positive news that was brought to them. There is a figurative way, certainly, I think, in which on, uh, Onesiphorus 
uh, refreshed Paul in that sense. But I'm going to submit to you it's much more likely that this is meant in a very literal way here. Uh, the Mamertine prison, as, as, as it went through years and as it's been historically documented, uh, is, is you think of a dank, humid, uncomfortable place. Uh, quite possibly had water pooling in the different areas of the prison. Can you think about being in a prison cell, perhaps with no window, Always walking around in water and mud. Subject to the heat. Subject to the cold. Paul's words suddenly begin to make a whole lot of sense, don't they? Let me submit to you, this is why we see so much in the New Testament about remembering prisoners. Why don't you look at these two passages with me? Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3. This is after we're encouraged to run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. This is after we're told, chapter 13 and verse 2, to show hospitality. In chapter 13 and verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says, Remember the prisoners as though you are in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Remember the prisoners as if you're chained with them. Of course, I think we've made the point in our teaching before, and rightly so. This isn't just, hey, think about them, it's what? Be active in taking care for them. In fact, it's the very thing Jesus would say, right, in Matthew chapter 25. Remember this scene in Matthew 25 and verse 36 where we're shooting the sheep and the goats? And we're talking about what made somebody righteous or, or, or what the characteristics were of those who were righteous and the characteristics of those who were unrighteous. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 36, what did Jesus say? One of the characteristics of the sheep, one of the characteristics of the righteous. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I was in prison and you came to me. You see why that was a necessity. Those who were in prison depended, their lives literally depended upon the folks who would come and visit them. Who came and visited Paul? Nobody except for Onesiphorus. There's something to be said for that. Come back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 17. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, He often refreshed me, he was not ashamed of my chains, but when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me, and he found me. The Mamertine prison is not the only prison in Rome today. Of course, it was not the only prison that was in Rome back in the first century. How in the world did Onesiphorus find Paul? I don't know. I want to know. There's a story there, and I bet it's pretty good. But the fact that Onesiphorus did find Paul is in and of itself an act of service. 
There's no online intake records that Onesiphorus could have been searching through. How did he get the information then? I mean, we, we read in our, our book on the penal policy of Rome just a few moments ago, you wanted to get some of that information, what you have to do? You have to pay for it. Bribe the officials. How much asking and paying do you think Onesiphorus had to do? Find Paul. But if it wasn't going to be Onesiphorus to do it, who was going to do it? The answer is there wasn't anybody else going to do it. But there was Onesiphorus. Paul's language there in verse 17, he found me. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being trapped in that prison, knowing that you're there illegitimately? And day in and day out being subject to the elements, being subject to those conditions, the stifling heat, the brutal cold, hunger and thirst, and then knock on the door and you see a face and it's someone you know. He was there. He found me. You think that meant a lot to Paul? You think it mean a lot to our brethren when we do similar acts today? He refreshed Paul. He found Paul. He was not ashamed of Paul. That's the end of verse 16 there. He was unashamed of Paul. You think about what Paul's condition must have been. Right? He has been in this prison. We don't know how long. But I'll tell you what I think Paul was probably like. I think he was probably emaciated. I think he probably stunk. I think his breath was probably awful. I think the smell coming off of him would have been reprehensible, especially if you're there in the summertime and you're almost in this swamp-like condition. I bet his hair was grown out and matted. I bet he was dirty. I bet he was nearly unrecognizable. But he says Onesiphorus was not what? He wasn't ashamed. Those physical things weren't going to deter Onesiphorus from his brother and they weren't going to change his mind about his brother. There are a lot of things that can, can make us ashamed. Aren't we glad Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of Paul? In fact, that was to be used as a lesson for Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. Uh, Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. I think the bigger point is, you know who else wasn't ashamed of him? Jesus wasn't ashamed of him. Boy, that's a lesson we need to take to heart, isn't it? We can be in the most deplorable, by society standards, of physical condition. And Jesus won't be ashamed of us. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to what the Hebrew writer tells us here. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. 
Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, For both he who sanctifies and those who were sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed, not ashamed to call them what? Brethren. What a blessing to know that whatever I might be enduring in this life, whatever I might be suffering in this life, the mere fact of my physical condition isn't going to make Jesus ashamed of me. That he loves me. He cares for me. And he wants the best for me. Onesiphorus was unashamed of his brother. And I love this in verse 18. He served in Ephesus. What did he do? I don't know. I don't know. I wish I knew. I want to know. I want to know what Onesiphorus did in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul simply says, The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know, Timothy, very well what services he rendered in Ephesus. Paul, why didn't you tell us? I want to know. But we don't. But we know that it was meaningful. We know that it made a lasting impression on Paul. And we know that it doesn't matter who else knew what he did. You think it was financial support? Maybe Onesiphorus had some money. He seems to be able to pay some of the guards for information. That may have been it. That riot that happens in Ephesus, do you think Onesiphorus played a role in it? He seems to be a pretty brave guy, doesn't he? Maybe now. Was he just merely seeing to Paul's needs? I don't know. But Paul knew, and God knew, and that was enough. It's not about all the acclaim, all the popularity, all the prestige. It's about just finding those moments to serve and then serving. So if you and I are going to serve like Onesiphorus today, let's make some practical application. How can we be servants like Onesiphorus was? Number one, we can be sources of refreshing to those who are around us. Whether that's physically, whether that's emotionally, certainly we should never leave out the idea spiritually. But if we're going to serve like Onesiphorus, we need to be these sources of refreshing. What does that look like? If I'm going to be a source of spiritual refreshing, that may be having some of the conversations that we talked about in our Bible class this morning, right? Being able to sit down with somebody and calmly and lovingly and compassionately talk to them about their spiritual condition and help them move closer to Jesus. If I'm going to be a source of refreshing emotionally, what's that going to look like? That may look like just sitting with somebody. There was a, a brother in Christ, sister in Christ, he and his wife, miscarried their child late in pregnancy. And he, he, he talks about hospital and just, I mean, what do you do? And the elders from his church came, knocked on the door, came, spoke with him said, we don't know what to say. Nothing we can say. 
can take away the pain that you're feeling. We just want you to know that we're here for you. And then they just sat there with him. Nothing big, nothing grand, but meaningful and impactful. That brother says, those elders to this day don't know what, what that meant to them. It may be physical refreshing. What's that look like? I made this reference down in San Antonio. No, I take that back. One person got it. It may look like funeral chicken. I see, yeah, yeah, you nodded your head. Folks here in East Texas, when, sometimes we call it funeral chicken. Sometimes we call it rich cracker chicken. Sometimes we call it poppy seed chicken, right? But somebody in your family dies, what's going to end up at the house? There's going to be banana pudding at some point. And there's going to be some funeral chicken, right? I always like that because I really like that funeral chicken. That's good stuff. But what is that? That's just an expression of care, isn't it? It's, I want to take care of you in your time of, of need, and here's one very practical way that I can be of service. That is being like Onesiphorus. That is being a source of refreshing. Make sure you cut the onions. But that's being a really good source of service. These are the practical ways that we can carry out the commands of Jesus. These are the practical ways that we can be like Onesiphorus. These are the practical ways that we can serve one another and draw closer to one another and build up the body of Christ. We can serve without concern of notice or acclaim. That is that wonderful statement there in verse 18. You know the good that he did. And Timothy, because you know it, I don't need to repeat it because other people don't need to know about it because it's not important. It's not important that they know about it. I have no doubt there is so much good that has been done by the members of this church behind the scenes that no one will ever know about. When I was at Judson Road, we had one of our elders pass away. And at the visitation and at the funeral, we had person after person after person come into that funeral that none of us recognized. Not us, not his children. Couldn't figure out what was going on. Little did we know what we found out is over the course of his life, he had helped out untold numbers of people financially. When you had oil busts in East Texas, sacks of groceries just mysteriously ended up on the back porches of people's homes. We found out that was him and his wife. There was a man who was trying to get a business started, needed a loan. None of the banks would help him out. This elder did. And there's still a tower and record company there in Longview, Texas, that's operating because of what this brother did all those many, many years ago. Nobody knew about it until he was there. It's amazing what we can accomplish when we don't care who gets the credit or who knows about it. We can be the person that does the little thing. I can make funeral chicken. Don't tell my wife because she makes a really good dish of it and I want her to keep on doing that. But I can make funeral chicken and I, I, can, I burn toast. But be the person that does the little thing. 
Maybe you can make that banana pudding. Maybe you can make that funeral chicken. Maybe you can pick up the $5 Little Caesars hot and ready and bring it over to somebody's house. There's something you can do, maybe. Maybe you can walk the person to their car. Maybe you can go sit and pray. Maybe you can just go and sit. We can all do something. Be the person who does the little things. Because it may be a little thing in the whole scheme of things. It may mean something huge to that person. It did for Paul. He searched for me and he found me. What a joy that must have been for Paul. We need to make sure that we're ashamed of the right things. If you're keeping track, this is our last slide, so we're getting done, all right? Be ashamed of the right things. We don't need to be ashamed of our brethren. We don't need to be ashamed of their lowly circumstances. Onesiphorus certainly wasn't. There are some things we do need to be ashamed of. Look at Acts chapter 5. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Here are early disciples. Here are the apostles. They've been beaten. They've been whipped. And in verse 41, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Paul talks later about bearing the marks of Christ on his body. I think he's just talking about the sufferings that were evident on his body that he went through for the cause of Christ. He wasn't ashamed of those. We shouldn't be ashamed of that kind of stuff either. But there are some things we ought to be ashamed of. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 34, Paul says to the Christians there, be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. There are some things we ought to be ashamed of. That when we as Christians aren't living like Jesus wants us to live, when we're falling short of his example, when we're willfully turning away from him, when we're not taking up the cross and following after him, we ought to be ashamed of that. Got to be ashamed of the right things. We got to serve our families. A lot of that means husbands, we need to lead. Go back there to chapter 1 and chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Who is praised? The household of Onesiphorus. He had led his home. They followed in his steps. He set the lead. He set the tone. And the work of service that he had begun, his family continued carrying on. Here's what we need in our families. Here's what we need in our churches. Here's what we need in our society. We need husbands who are going to step up and lead. And part of being a good leader is being a good servant. We need that from our husbands. We need that from our fathers. And finally, look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. It all starts by serving Jesus. That's where it started for Onesiphorus. That's where it started for Paul. And that's where it needs to start for you and for me. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 13, 
Paul says to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes, but not, verse 16, on Onesiphorus or his household. The contrast between Phygelus and Hermogenes and Onesiphorus there is stark. What differentiated them? How they responded to Paul, but not simply how they responded to Paul, verse 13, how they responded to Jesus. Serving like Onesiphorus begins first and foremost in my life by making the decision to serve Jesus. The question for us this morning is, have I come to Jesus? Have I come, verse 13, to faith in Jesus Christ? And if you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ, that, that's where it all starts. That's where it all begins. That if you're not a child of God, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, if you have not taken up your cross and started to follow after him, that is where this whole principle of servanthood begins. If you haven't turned away from your past sins, if you haven't confessed Jesus as your Lord, if you haven't met him in the waters of baptism and raised to walk a new life, you haven't started yet. And you haven't tasted the good things that God has to offer. But you can this morning. We want you to. We've been talking a lot about Christians this morning. Maybe you look at your life as a Christian this morning. And you haven't been serving as you should. You haven't been looking out for your brethren. You haven't been following the example of your Lord. And you're ready to make a change. We want you to make that change. Maybe it's between you and God, and you just need to take care of it between you and God right now. Do that. But if you want the prayers and the support and the love of this local church, we stand ready to help. If there's anything we can do to help you respond to the gospel this morning, would you come while we stand and while we sing?